0: Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire, And welcome in to another edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast. You know, being a part of the ILC, the Internet Libertarian Community, as I call it, we see a lot of rhetoric tossed around. Words like statist, tyranny, liberty. When we toss around words, it's important to convey exactly what those words mean. Otherwise, they're useless and even counterproductive. You could be sending the wrong message. If someone thinks what you mean when you say liberty means tyranny to them, well, we got a problem. You know, one word we hear a lot tossed around is fascism. You fascist pig! We hear this stuff all the time. But what does fascism really mean? Where does the word come from? It was first made popular by a character you may have heard of, the famous Italian dictator named Benito Mussolini. And my guest here with me today is an expert on Mussolini and fascism. He is a professor of Italian at Bowling Green State University. He is the author of seven books, primarily focusing on the historical, economic, and social factors influencing Italian culture. And he is here with me today to discuss his latest book, Economic Fascism, Primary Sources on Mussolini's crony capitalism. Professor Carlo Celli, welcome to the Lines of Liberty Podcast. Very happy to be here. And we're excited to have you on today to discuss this figure, Benito Mussolini, someone associated with this word fascism that we hear tossed around all the time. And I really want to get into what fascism means with you. But first, in reviewing your previous work, it seems like you mostly focus on Italian culture, cinema, art, that kind of thing. What was it that prompted you to research and publish a book on
1: Mussolini and the economics of fascism? Well, I've gotten interested in the documents that really sort of formed the century. I did a lot of studies of cinema, and there's a figure at the beginning of the century, his name was Donuncio, who um, was sort of the model for Mussolini in terms of all of the uh, stylistic and uh, culture aspects of fascism. I have a degree in economics, I used to work in the banking industry. And I realized that these documents that Mussolini, actually what he said, what, what the fascist dictator actually said about fascism, aren't available or were not before this, uh, this collection. And I think it's very important to have these things so that people can understand what fascism is and, and you know, be better educated.
0: Now, before we talk about Mussolini himself, I want to get into the root of what the word fascism itself means. Now, I I took Latin class in high school and college, and I remember learning about the fasces. It's um, an ancient Roman symbol, I believe, symbolizing power, strength, through unity. It's like that bundle of branches with the axe. Can you explain exactly where that word derives from and how fascism relates to the fasces?
1: The Roman term for the fascists is a bundle of sticks, and it was the um, symbol of authority of the Roman lictors, um, who had the power to actually speak for the, the Senate in, um, in certain occasions and also in diplomatic occasions and also carry out uh, judicial sentences. So, it, what it meant in Roman times was authority. And it's a very common symbol, even the House of Representatives actually has them on, or used to have them on the, on the sides of the podium.
0: Yeah, excel above the Senate. About the Oval Office, yeah. the Supreme Court, we see it all over uh,
1: the U.S. Government. All over the place. That's exactly right. So the word fascism is, sort of gets into exactly what Mussolini's genius was in terms of his background as a wordsmith and a journalist. What he did is he took this term, In the beginning it sort of meant groups of soldiers, because um, you have to realize that Mussolini, um, when he broke with the Italian um, Socialist Party, and he created his own um, own party, the Fascist Party eventually, it was over uh, involvement in World War I, and so he needed some word in order to create what he wanted to do, which was sort of he had a socialist background, and he basically invented this, this concept and this way of doing government, which he saw as a third way between capitalism and between socialism. So the origins of the word are in Latin and in Roman uh, imperial culture and government, and Mussolini, who was a journalist, it's very important to understand anything about fascism, anything about Mussolini, that he was basically a very, very able at creating words, at creating really out of thin air, an entire political way of, of behavior, a uh, culture, which he adapted and which he you know, changed over the years according to whatever uh, situations he had. So uh, that's where the word comes from. It's, uh, it's originally ancient Latin symbol of power. And Mussolini then took it to mean these uh, groups of soldiers in World War I and after who uh, fought together as sort of groups. So they, there were these fasci di combattimento, which means the combat groups. These groups became extremely important after World War I when uh, the Italians were in the uh, Treaty of Versailles negotiations and they did not receive territories on the Adriatic coast in the present-day uh, of Croatia, particularly a city called Fiume, which uh, in Croatia I think, is called Rijeka. These cities on the Adriatic coast had Italian populations, and part of the um, desire or the argument for the nationalists like Mussolini to go to war was to get these possessions, these old Venetian colonies on the Adriatic coast. And when that did not come about, they really followed that this leader I mentioned before, who was Donuncio, who went and actually occupied that city called Fiume, called Rieca, and this was in you know, 1919, 1920. And Mussolini then basically, once Donuncio was expelled, there were, you know, League of Nations uh, actions against them in order to make them adhere to the terms of the Versailles Treaty. Once that happened, Mussolini really took up the banner of a Denuncio in Fiume, which included a constitution which would eventually become was called the Charter of Carnaro which would include the basic tenets of fascist government, which would be the creation of corporations, of labor corporations which Mussolini eventually would want to have replaced the senate. So instead of a uh, you know a um, a representative body house of representatives and a senate, he would have a house of representatives and then he would have a chamber of fascist corporations. The term then is from that origin Latin. Mussolini then goes on and assumes a lot of the theater that D'Annunzio developed in that town. These include the Roman salute which was later then adopted by the Nazis as well the uh, wearing of black as a uniform, and even the um, skull and crossbones insignia, which were actually the uniforms of the Italian shock troops of World War I, which were later copied by the SS. So you can see sort of a train of theatrical and cultural, you have to call it plagiarism, from D'Annunzio to Mussolini, and then eventually to Hitler. Who Mussolini came to power in 1922, uh, Hitler comes to power in 1933, and one of the first things Hitler does is he goes down, takes a train to Venice, meets Mussolini and you know, asks him exactly, what do I do? Uh, that's the story. What are the trappings that I need to come to in order to have a fascist state? And Mussolini, who by that time had been in power for 10 years, and uh, stories are coming out now that he had actually funded a lot of Hitler's early political activities by giving him a large sum of money for the translation of Mein Kampf. Uh, you see then a, a trail from Mussolini, World War I, Donunzio, Mussolini getting power in 1922, creating a dictatorial state in 1925. They passed a law in which they could have a supermajority in the Senate. And once that happened from 1925 until he was deposed in 1943, the fascist regime was what Mussolini said it was.
0: You mentioned the Treaty of Versailles. Can you describe a little more the economic and political state of Italy post-World War I? What kind of shape was the country in that allowed for the kind of climate that would, you know, allow someone like Mussolini to rise to power?
1: The climate in Italy after World War I was uh, very, very, very tense. They have to realize that there just had been the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. So the moneyed classes in Italy were extremely nervous about their situation. And throughout Germany, there were the developments of independent Soviets in some industrial towns. So the Italian elite or the Italian bourgeoisie, these terms used by the Marxists, were very nervous about keeping control and not suffering the kind of revolution they had in Russia. So uh, there was some say that they seemed sort of a near-civil war in Italy between 1919 and 1922, in which you had open confrontation between socialists and fascists, in which the fascists would use these tactics of going to the house of their political opponents, dragging them into the center square, making them drink con oil, castor oil, which was liquid that was given to children, but also had a laxative effect. The police and the Carabinieri, the Italian federal police, so the equivalent of the FBI, apparently sided and did not act against this fascist violence. And this paved the way for Mussolini to gain power, there was a march on Rome in 1922, when Mussolini was actually safely away from the city. There was a party national congress in Naples, and uh, the members of the Italian Fascist Party, who really had not won an election or done very well in elections until 1921-22, they had been defeated very badly by the socialists before that. They marched onto Rome with sort of almost a folkloric uh, parade, the sort of things that you see in Washington D.C., where all the all the farmers show up, or you know, all the uh, one one political group shows up. It grew and grew and grew to the point where nobody stopped them, and they realized that they could take power. And the king, at the time Victor Emmanuel III, did nothing to declare a state of emergency or anything like that. And Mussolini then was asked to come in and start and form a government. And he behaved well—I mean, well in parentheses—in the parliamentary system until, as I said before, 1925. The turning point would be 1924 when they murdered a um, socialist deputy. His name is Matteotti. If you go to any Italian town, one of the main streets in any town is Via Matteotti, in memory of this assassinated parliamentarian. The story is that he either had to take responsibility for the actions of the fascist squads or face expulsion. And he decided, of course, to take power and become the dictator of Italy. This began also a personality cult, where uh, Mussolini tried to change the culture of the country, tried to emphasize its unity, its uh, Romanness instead sort of Italianness. He instituted all of these youth groups, the uh, Sons of the She Wolf, the Balilla, which is sort of a Boy Scout organization, and tried very hard to change the way Italian culture worked. And one of the fascinating things that I learned from the book is that Mussolini. Despite having all of this power, despite being an absolute dictator and being able to control almost every sector of the economy, if you look at the economic statistics in terms of the great battles which were his main goals, he wanted to have a stronger demographic growth for the country, he wanted to have the economy be more self-sufficient, the word he uses is autarky, many of these things actually had very, very little effect. So a lesson, which I learned, I did not expect this going into the book, was that the economy of a country really is a force of nature. Despite the power that Mussolini had, if you look at the statistics which are included at the end of the book, he really did not have that much influence on most things, birth rates, GDP, anything.
0: That's a really interesting observation, because I do notice throughout these uh, reading these documents, he really loves to focus on statistics. He's constantly putting out all the statistics of the past year, or what have you, and then pointing out his vision of higher this way, or we should produce more grain, or we should get more minerals here. He really is just the epitome of a central planner. He has all these grand visions of exactly what Italy should be, uh, makes all these decrees, and you know, at the end of the day, the economy just does what it's going to do, and everybody makes their own decisions based on what they have to do in their life. And these dictatorial decrees end up having very little effect. I think that's a very, you know, fascinating thing that you point out, and something that I also kind of thought when I was
1: going through the book. The statistics that he cites, and I see some of this in the introduction. Some of them are blatantly are, are false. Where he cites whatever the debts are, the the amount of money in circulation. It's very very difficult to know who to believe in these cases. Uh, whether Mussolini's statistics were a little bit closer to truth, or the ones which were produced after the war, which was obviously a backlash against the fascist regime, are much more accurate. That's a question which you know, which would have to take a much more detailed study. But the point about Mussolini not having that much influence over the basic essence of the Italian economy, it is a very important one and uh, I was surprised by that. I really thought with all of the efforts that were made, he fixed the exchange of the lira to the English pound at 90 of the pound, he declared various battles, the battle of grain which was leading imports and all the other problems that Italy had trying to replace raw materials. Italy did not have coal so they came up with artificial solutions to replace all the raw materials that that they had to import. And um, these did not really have that much effect. So that is a huge lesson for anybody, that uh, the government can try to do things, impose their will. But at the end of the day, the economy must be seen as a force of nature. And it will go where it will go. Demographics will be what demographics are. The one area which you could give Mussolini credit for was that he did not murder a significant portion of his own population.
0: That is something to applaud, because a lot of dictators do a lot of that, as
1: we've seen. It's not much of a a, a compliment. The bar is very low when we're talking about (laughs) dictators.
0: Something you mentioned there was the Battle of Grain, and they always have these battles that they mention. It's the Battle of Grain, or slavery to foreign whatever, fill in the blank. Do you see any parallels between these these rhetorical battles that Mussolini talks about today, where we have war on everything, a war on drugs, war on terror, that kind of thing?
1: Oh, very much so. The most important thing that we really must learn from Mussolini is his rhetoric and the way in which he channeled the national mood and attempted to control the national discourse. So when he would go and have this battle of grain and then appear you know, shirtless harvesting grains, a famous newsreel, or they would have uh, city parks where they would plant grain, these things were attempts also to hold the population. And to keep the population in this revolutionary mode, you have to realize that Mussolini really thought that he was a revolutionary, that he had invented a third way. And another lesson which I learned from the book is if you start asking yourself, what exactly is a fascist country? You'd have to go around the world and, and try and ask yourself, what exactly isn't? I mean, how many countries really allow their free currency, free trade? Which, how many countries do not have a relationship between corporations and government? The one institute which Mussolini's policies were the most long-lasting was the Institute for Industrial Reconstruction, which was founded in 1933 during the height of um, of the economic crisis following the stock market crash in 1929. This institute was an attempt by the Italian government to control where resources and where industrial production went into various sectors of the economy. And it remained in place until the year 2000. Many have said that it was copied or was also modeled on what the Japanese did in their industrial booms. I think that is another point in which you have to understand what Mussolini was trying to do. If you think of the economics of production and labor, by trying to control labor through corporations, the government saw itself as being able to have control over the entire state. Muslim makes his famous statement that there's nothing outside the state, that everything is a state, and he is a state. He also makes these statements about social justice, about many other things that
0: Kind of spiritual take on the state, he seemed to portray the state as a a spiritual collective of all the individuals of the society. And one statement he made was how the preference of individuals or the needs of individuals should never supersede the needs of the state because the state represents all the individuals. It's very similar to what we hear today in justifications for just about any government policy.
1: That is exactly right. Justifications for any government policy. The statements that you're talking about, though, would be written by the official regime philosopher, who's a fellow named Giovanni Gentile, and he had this idea that the reality in government was, was based on imminence instead of transcendence. So you're looking basically in instead of out towards something else. So that is the philosophical basis which you mentioned quite correctly. It's a difficult point to accept that somebody could think that they have control over everything, and they think that they actually can control it. It's, it's a mindset, which is increasingly common these days, and was one of the points, really, that I hope that this book would, would counter.
2: Another
0: thing you mentioned earlier that I wanted to ask you about was how Mussolini's movement focused on the youth. You know. The- and a lot of their political positions catered to that, the minimum wage requirements. They wanted to lower the voting age. What's the reasoning behind that? Why is it so important for a movement like this to grasp the youth of a population?
1: When the fascist to came to power, they really were after the youth vote, coming home from the trenches. Mussolini had served in the war in the of his early 30s. But the people who came back from the war, the veterans, were Mussolini's main constituents, or one of them whereby having served in World War I was almost a political uh, assignation of legitimacy compared to the way in which um, American presidents, after the Civil War, service in the Civil War was something which gave somebody great legitimacy. The thing which I mentioned earlier about this occupation of that town on the Croatian coast, Rijeka Fiume, some commentators say that when Denuncio, who was somewhat of a, of a hedonistic character, when they took over that uh, town, that the partying that they did could be compared to Berkeley in the 60s. The Italian fascist fight song was, it was called Youth, Youth, was the rallying cry around which they saw their future. The Nazis did the same thing. The youth, obviously, are much more prone to revolutionary ideals and violence, and so a Mussolini wanted to um, tap into that in order to gain power. And the interesting thing about his career um, as a dictator. As he starts out as this revolutionary figure, and he little by little becomes extremely related to the status quo. In 1929, they make a, the Lateran Pact with the Vatican. Mussolini does not make the mistake of trying to alienate the religious sentiment. He, he had been a violent anti cleric. He split with the Socialist Party, just as he had been a draft dodger. He actually went to Switzerland. He, he, he dodged the draft and, and, and went to Switzerland in exile in 1902. So, um, the youth vote was something which he was after. It was an image of him as being this uh, this great virile figure, which interested him. But as the regime went on, obviously Mussolini aged. Some, you could say that someone somewhat declined, and at the end of his career, after he had been deposed in 1943, which is also an interesting story, they went back to these early revolutionary tenets when the um, Nazis set him up as a um, sort of puppet leader. In a northern Italian state, uh, based at Salo, which is a little town on Lake Garda, so uh, they went back to this revolutionary idea, and they would bring back all these uh, ideas which you mentioned before about the, which were planks in the Socialist Party platform of 1920, 1921, minimum wage, uh, that sort of thing, were things which Mussolini or you know, issues which Mussolini tried to wrest away from the Socialist Party.
0: Something else I found fascinating, looking through these documents that I didn't really expect, was how Mussolini used a very anti-socialist message in some of his earlier documents. He also uses a lot of pro-free market rhetoric. He talks about the cessation of useless public works, returning private industries, telephones and railways back to the free market. At the same time, mixes that free market rhetoric with a socialist rhetoric, you know, denouncing socialism Somehow he turns all of that into this third rail, as you mentioned earlier, his fascist system. Can you kind of describe how Mussolini used both free market rhetoric, anti-socialist rhetoric, and how he mixed that all into his fascist message?
1: The way to think about this is just pure opportunism. The document you're speaking about the early platform of the fascist party in which he is trying to wrest away votes from the socialist party. Therefore, he has the social issues. Yet he also wants to comfort and assuage the fears of the the status quo that he is in favor of free markets. Therefore, uh, this is actually what worked for him. He was able to present himself as this leader with this social conscience or these social programs and he was also able to uh, not intimidate the productive or industrial class or the agrarian class especially with free market rhetoric. You have to realize one of the problems we have these days thinking about Mussolini is the idea of class. Class back in nineteen nineteen was very, very, very powerful. Whereas you really could tell what somebody's class was just by the clothes they wore and the um how they spoke. Whereas that today is much more, much more difficult. Mussolini, uh, at least I get this from my relatives, was really opposed and seen as a uh, evil figure by the uh, the lower classes who didn't believe any of his rhetoric about these uh, about these programs. And yet uh, he was able to get power. And that's really one view of Mussolini that he really would do what it took in order to get power, and that he would change and uh, what fascism was and how it worked so that it would suit his personal megalomaniac purposes. By the time he was uh, established as a dictator, he went on a course of um, popularity of a a cult of his image. Uh, The best example of this is that he um, commissioned a giant statue of himself, which is supposed to rival the the Colossus of Rhodes. And they have a picture of it with uh, one of the workers standing next to this huge head of Mussolini, and he was going to stick it right in the middle of Rome. So you'd have the Roman Colosseum, and you'd have this <laughs> huge statue of Mussolini with his arms on his sides. Um, it's a pretty silly visual when you, when you think about it. Well, that, that's the point that it came to. I mean, if, if you have that kind of power, you'd want to do something with it. Um, all these myths that he was trying to infuse into the Italian population, of, of the myth of Rome, the myth of the virile fascist man, all these things were attempts to maintain control over society. But as I said before, if you look at the statistics, it really didn't work. Anytime you write a book, you always find that um, you find something out that you don't, didn't expect. I did not really expect that. I thought that Mussolini would have more of, of an effect on the basic economics of Italy turns out not really to be the case. Of course, you could go back and argue the statistics one way or the other. But it says something about just what the role of government is and what it can do if you think that somebody with that kind of power was not really able to do or achieve with his goals.
0: Professor Shelley, based on your research that you did for this book and everything you've learned about you know, Mussolini's fascism, do you think that the United States today is a fascist country?
1: People often ask me this question, uh, which country is fascist? And I think the way to, to answer is to turn it back around and ask which isn't. Um, which countries around the world are not controlling their currencies? Which countries around the world are not trying to have a relationship between industry and government? The crony capitalism is in the title of the book for a very good reason. So I um, mean, even the Swiss have pegged their currency with the euro. From that aspect, uh, Mussolini saw himself as uh, starting the fascist century, when he came around, um, that was part of his propaganda from 1922. And in many aspects, you could say that that is true. He did succeed in that. That the countries which have this relationship between government and labor and uh, production, including the United States. I mean, we think, uh, for example, the famous case of the, um, the Chrysler bailout, in which the, uh, the stockholders were put in line behind the um, labor union. These are actions which, uh, on the surface of it, would be a way to think of following Mussolini's um, policies in which you want to control labor and also control production. But you know, even there, uh, in Washington, I think the major uh, exploit of, the, uh, of this government has been to increase oil production. <laughs> for all the talk about uh, what the uh, Democrat Party wanted to do in these, uh, in these last term for president, what happened was something which is part of the economy, which was out of control, really, or something which is not seen as a, as a goal to be um, sought by the government.
0: Is it just impossible for you to take modern day political rhetoric seriously, having seen all these documents and then seeing all the parallels? Do you just completely see right through it at this point?
1: That really was the other result of doing this uh, this book i 've become extremely interested in rhetoric and in the way in which education really should be conducted i 've come to the conclusion that the study of rhetoric and logical fallacies is fundamental for any educated people that 's what Mussolini teaches that he was able, through the creation of words, to make a third rail movement which has had incredible influence throughout the world. And this was done basically just on on rhetoric. These were words that he created. He, like the Axis is his word, Axis of Evil, which was then you know adopted later on in, in the previous administration of the United States. Um, so yes, I think that that's what my next uh, works are about. It's um, so one of the things that strikes you about Mussolini is that uh, there are very few policies or statements, which you cannot find completely contradicted in in his works, so that uh, you wonder, as a pure politician, did he believe in anything other than his own power? Seems
0: like the same thing we can say for our current politicians that we see today. Professor Carlo Celli, thank you so much for joining me today. Before I let you go, where is the best place for our listeners to find this book, as well as all your other works?
1: I have a website, which is www.controlwords.org. And I am writing two books, which were inspired by my study of Mussolini, described on that uh, website, uh, controlwords.org. And that's what I'm working on now.
0: Well, we definitely look forward to that. and We'll have to have you back on when you come out with some of those other works you're working on. Professor Carlo Celli, thank you so much for joining us today on the Lions Liberty Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, and we'll be back after a word from our sponsors. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at theplacetovnation.com, your pop culture home. Agree to disagree. Yeah, it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion, and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. (laughs) You're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific on the new american media.com join the show offer your opinion and let's agree to disagree but let's have a good conversation
2: this is glenn
1: jacobs and you're listening to the lions of liberty podcast
2: here is your host your guide your shining beacon of liberty mark claire
0: All right, guys, we are back, and what a fountain of knowledge Professor Carlo Celli is. The subject we talked about today is a very important one. We don't usually do history lessons on this podcast, but I'm thinking maybe we should do more of them because I believe we can learn a lot from history. And as we discussed with Professor Celli, we can learn a lot by studying the rise of Benito Mussolini and his brand of economic fascism. And the title of the book, Professor Chelli equates the economic fascism of Mussolini with crony capitalism, a subject we've discussed many times before. We discussed it back in episode 10 with Hunter Lewis. You can go to the archive, lionsliberty.com slash podcast to check that out. Or get it on iTunes. Heck, we might as well do our plugs now. Subscribe on iTunes. Subscribe on the Stritcher radio app all your other needs, RSS feed, downloading, you can get that all at the website linesliberty.com slash podcast, all our past episodes. He equates this with crony capitalism, something that is essentially how our economy is run, where government interacts with certain corporations, favors certain corporations, basically puts certain corporations in charge of certain sectors of the economy, and everybody else gets shut out, and everybody left has to beg for a job in this corporatist system. That's why you see people needing to beg for minimum wages. Needing to beg for health care. Because we don't have a free market economy that would provide better wages to people, provide cheaper services to people. Instead, everything is run through this cronyist or fascist system. I didn't even mention the Ascension speech. One of the major documents that Professor Celli lays out where Mussolini brings in government-slash-corporate-control-of-medicine. We can see a lot of parallels to things that are going on today. The way that they politically target youth, try to use rhetoric to get youth excited. I mean, look at the Obama movement. Look at all the youth they sucked in there with their positions, when essentially the policies are no different than that of the George W. Bush administration, no different than that of what a Romney administration wouldn't be. But the Obama folk, pretty good at using rhetoric, pretty good at targeting youth rhetoric. I think that's the big reason that he won. The parallels that we see in this rhetoric are truly fascinating if you look at this book. And if you do, hopefully, like Professor Chelley, you will come out of this being able to completely see through modern day political rhetoric. I mean, when you see this stuff from 80, 90 years ago, and it's essentially just the same stuff we hear today. Oh, we can't default on the debt. We owe it to the nation. We can't default on war pensions for our heroes, our veterans. We owe it to them. It's the same kind of rhetoric that you hear to justify, essentially, any government policy at all. Fascism pushes the idea that the state is the people. The people are the state. And if that's the case, well, the state can pass any law because they're just representing the people anyway. Another important lesson we get from Professor Shelley's book is that central planning doesn't work. Only free markets can fulfill the needs of individuals. Only markets can properly allocate scarce resources to those individuals in the best way. Government decrees, dictates, corporatism, cronyism. This stuff can only get in the way. It can only distort things. It can only harm people. I highly encourage you to check out this book, Economic Fascism, Primary Sources on Mussolini's Crony Capitalism. We will, of course, link to that at the website. The website is lionsofliberty.com. Don't think we're going to let you forget. And guys, we hope you keep tuning back to this podcast each and every week. We'll be back once again next week. And until then, come on, you're not going to forget to live long and live free.
2: Mm from a mountain crest Sprung Mussolini with commander finesse While Romano boogie-woogie down the Waffen-SS Heinrich Himmler thought Romano was safe possessed The black church considered him a contraband So Hepcats learned to play jazz on the line Dissonance and counterpoint they had to disguise To play what they loved they'd have to improvise there, at the midnight of a sketchy sketch can And hey, Romano Mussolini's All oh, stomping Romano got hitched to a swarthy gem When he wed the sultry sister of Sophia Loren A husband, a father, once a dutiful son Now a jazz buff to boot and a band on the run he made a name for himself at the Monkey Bar. To say hello to when you new rising star. He transposed standards with effortless ease. Now get me free from no fake books, please. With syncopated rhythms that rhyme, these hipsters make brains run on time. To watch him sweat and blow their cool, that swing hip vibe's gonna hang in the It takes a lot of talent to find So play it again, Sam Drink up and light up A lucky brand Dig Romano Mussolini Romano Mussolinis Oh, stone